Scripture is taken from Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Do something new. I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to say, thanks be to God. Ready? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we do give you thanks that we have a word that is from you, a word that we can build our lives on, that we find life for our souls, hope in the midst of crisis, encouragement in the midst of sorrow, and life unending. Jesus, help us to find you once again this morning, to rediscover you, to come anew into your presence, and to be transformed by your spirit. We ask that you will do this in your mercy and in your grace. Amen. Amen. When I was in high school, uh, I was at a missions conference, and I heard a, a former missionary to Haiti share a story. Uh, and and, and she had served in Haiti for over 10 years, I think in the 90s. And she told the story of uh, a former gang leader who had become a Christian through the missionary work in Haiti. And when this man became a Christian, it was, for one, a pretty radical life change. But he also proved to be an immense help for the, for the missionaries because he was Haitian. He spoke the language. He knew the culture. Um, as, as a gang leader, he was very involved in the community, and so he knew what was going on. He knew where the real needs were. Uh, he knew places where missionaries could be helpful. And one day, he, he, he asked a missionary to go with him, and, and he took this missionary out to a garbage heap outside the city where they were living in. And as he came to the garbage heap, about a few dozen elementary school-age kids ran out, and he told them that these are all orphaned kids whose parents either died or their parents have left them. And this uh, Haitian um, former uh, crime lord, whose name was Moise, he said to the missionary, Jesus loves these kids, and so we have to do something to help them. And so the missionary called a meeting with all the other missionaries in Haiti, and, uh, and Moise was there, and they were talking about what can they do to help these children who are living in a garbage dump outside the city limits. After discussing it, they decided that probably the best case scenario would be to build some kind of orphanage, a place that could provide care for these kids, but also give them an education, uh, give them some kind of future. 
they all agreed this would be the best case scenario. The only problem was they didn't have any money. They realized that to build an orphanage would require quite a bit of financial resources, resources that the missions agency did not have, resources that the missionaries did not have. And so they discussed them back and forth. It's a great idea, but we don't have money. We don't know where this money would come from. And so finally they decide to have some kind of brainstorm to see if they can figure out how they would come up with this kind of money. And the way the missionary told the story is she said that she took out her notebook along with the rest of the missionaries in, in, that, in that meeting to have a brainstorm. And Moise, he's in that meeting and he looks confused. And he turns to the missionary and says, what are you doing? She says, well, I'm taking out my notebook to have a brainstorm. And Moise stands up and he says, has God already told you how he's going to pay for this? And everyone says, no. That's the point of the brainstorm. And he said, well, if this is God's work, wouldn't it be better to pray and fast? Now, when you're a missionary and someone that you have led to the Lord suggests that you pray, what else are you going to, no one's going to say no to that. Let's put it that way. And so they go into a season of extended prayer and extended fasting, and God ends up providing the resources they need for this orphanage in a, in a miraculous way that had nothing to do with a brainstorm, nothing to do with financial or with, with, with fundraising. And the reason that story has stuck with me is because the missionaries in that story so aptly summarize how me, how I often function, and probably how many of you function, because I think it's a very American way to function. We are problem solvers as Americans. We're very pragmatic. We want to get stuff done. And so when something comes our way, we're going to brainstorm it. We're going to, we're going to problem solve. We're going to figure out the solution, and then we're going to make it happen. That's what Americans do. So we built this whole country. And if you're a Christian American, the only difference often is that you might say perfunctory prayer at the beginning of that process. But for Moise and for the early church, prayer was not a perfunctory thing you said before you did what you wanted to do anyways. Prayer was their very life. It was where they found their strength. It was where they found the motivation and the hope to continue in the face of opposition. And so in our story this morning, as the church faces its first opposition, the beginning of what will be a pretty intense persecution, what is so instructive for us is that their first response is they pray. Not as a perfunctory, Lord bless our efforts, but they pray with all their being. And the amazing thing is that God answers their prayer. So our outline for us this morning is first, we're gonna see the prayer impulse of this early church. And second, we're gonna look at the actual prayer that they pray. And then third, we're gonna look at the response. So again, first point, the prayer impulse. Now a quick recap, because we're picking up in the middle of a story. So let's remember where we are in this story. Peter and John had healed a man who'd been handicapped his whole life. And it's a miraculous event. It draws a crowd in the temple. And so as this crowd forms, uh, Peter begins to preach the gospel. The Sadducees, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders show up. They don't like that Jesus is preaching the Christ that they had crucified. And so they throw Peter and John in jail. They put them in trial. The Holy Spirit fills Peter so that he is able to answer their questions with extraordinary courage. And in the end, the religious leaders aren't able to do anything to Peter and John because this man has been healed and they can't deny it. And so they have to release Peter and John. And what's important to keep in mind as we get into our story here in verses 23 to 31 is first verses 17 to 18. This is how, as they're in the trial, 
This is what the religious leaders are doing. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, that the gospel may spread no further, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, this is Peter and John, they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And then again, verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go. That's what we want to keep in mind is that, that that's the finishing note in the previous story. Yes, Peter and John have been released, but the religious leaders are threatening them and are, and are charging them, don't preach this anymore if you know it's good for you. And that's when we pick up in our story here in verses 23. So follow along as I read just the first two verses again for us. So when they were released, again released from prison and from this trial, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. I have never been in a situation where my life was endangered because of my profession of faith, where it was legitimately endangered. And I'm guessing that's probably true for many of you as well. And so it's helpful for us to understand the dynamics of what's going on, to try to, it's helpful for us to try to put ourselves in the shoes of these early Christians. Again, the council that is after them is the same council that had condemned Jesus. These are a group of religious leaders who've shown, one, that they have the will to kill if you cross them, and two, that they have the ability to get it done if they really want to. And this is the group that now not only killed their Lord, but is now after them. And so sure, Peter and John are released, but that's just for now. And, and again, even if these religious leaders aren't able to kill Peter and John and the Christians, even if they're not able to do that, they're highly respected leaders in the Jewish community. There are all kinds of ways that they can cause problems for this early church. They, again, are, are, are you know, they're very influential among Jews. They can do lots of things to poison the hearts and minds of people against the gospel. They have connections with Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Roman authorities, they can perhaps get the Roman authorities to make it difficult for the church to function. Like these are bad enemies to have. In America, we have such an extraordinary level of religious freedom that it's just hard for us to even fathom what this is like. Um, our country is founded oftentimes with the premise that religion is a good thing for society. And so we not only have religious freedom, there's really religious advantage especially if you're, you know, historically a Protestant Christian in America. And so for us, our greatest fear is not the religious police kicking in our door and dragging us to prison. Our, our greatest fear is, what will my neighbor think of me when I share Jesus with them? Or what will someone think of me when I read my Bible in a coffee shop? That's about as far as our fears go. But here, they're, they're facing real persecution. What would we do if all of a sudden Kentucky passed laws that penalize certain beliefs, said all the churches in Louisville, you need to sign the statement of beliefs that contradicted certain Christian beliefs. And if you don't sign it, there's tax penalties. And if you still don't sign it, there may be jail time. You may lose access to certain, you know, public works, hospitals, stuff like that. Like, here's the question. If that happened, which is hard to imagine, but imagine that did happen, how would we respond? Would we lobby Frankfurt? Would we march on Louisville? Would we start a petition? What did the early church do? Well, again, verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. 
Again, picture this, this scene, this early church, they're hearing this report. They're feeling that cold fear creep into their stomachs. What does this mean for us, for the future of this church, the safety of my spouse, my kids, my parents? And what do they do? They go before the Lord in prayer. I just want us to note this impulse of the church. When they face opposition, there's no like swaggering, like, oh, I'm not, I'm not afraid. There's no sense that Peter and John, when they give this report, are like, yeah, we, we took it to the religious leaders. I think Peter and John are afraid. And this early church is afraid. But what does their fear make them do? It drives them to the Lord in prayer. What we see lived out in this early church is Psalm 40, verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Their trust is in the Lord. And so the first impulse of their heart when they come up to opposition, when they are afraid, again, together they lifted their voices to God. What do you do when you're afraid and anxious? Not just about opposition, but in life. How do you handle fear? Um, are you a planner? So when you're afraid, like you're going you're gonna to figure out how to solve this problem. You're going to plan it out. You're going to control it. You're going to brainstorm what you need to protect yourself and your family. Are you a procrastinator? Just pretend it doesn't exist. If I just ignore this problem, it'll go away. Or maybe just curl up in bed and put the covers over your head. Those are all problematic in different ways, right? For those of us who like to control things, we just need to realize that control is always an illusion. As James tells his listeners, what are you? You're a morning mist here in the morning, gone in the afternoon. You don't know what tomorrow brings. Any comfort we get from control in our lives, we have to realize, is an illusion. Uh, if we procrastinate, um, like when has ignoring a problem ever done anything? Ever. Oh, maybe this time. No, it never does anything good. And you don't need to be a Christian to see that hiding under your bed covers is not the life that we want to live. But again, Psalm 40, blessed, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Happy is the man. He finds favor with God. His life is worth emulating who makes the Lord his trust. So the church is showing us. Fear drives them to God to make him their trust. Why is the Lord, why is the man blessed who makes the Lord his trust? Well, it's because the Lord that we follow has proven himself again and again and again to be trustworthy. He's proven that he's good. He's proven how much he loves you by dying for you, giving up his own life. And he's the Lord. He's the Lord, the sovereign creator the author of life, the omnipotent ruler of all reality. He is someone we can trust, who can hold our trust well. This church gives us an example to emulate, that they make the Lord their trust, and their first impulse is to pray. So that's the first point, the prayer impulse. But the second point, let's get into what they actually pray. This is the prayer. Again, the prayer. Verses 24 to 30, uh, follow along as I read this. And again, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, 
who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed throughout the through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. First thing I want to point out is that this church begins their prayer by affirming that God is sovereign. This is what we just profess together in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, who God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. The God we worship is the sovereign Lord. And it's significant that they begin with this, because why are they praying? They're praying because they're afraid. They don't, they're praying because someone is threatening their life. But that's not how they begin. This is weird, okay? They basically begin with a systematic theology. Oh, here we have doctrine of God. God is the creator. We have doctrine of revelation, how the spirit inspires. Then doctrine of predestination. And in, in, in all the times I've visited folks in the hospital, I've never had someone ask me to bring their favorite systematic theology to read to them while they're in the hospital. Usually it's not what they want to hear. Why are they doing this? Well, it's not because God needs to be reminded of who he is. That's for sure. God knows who he is, but they needed to be reminded of who God was. They needed to be reminded of how things really were because things weren't looking so good for them at that point. Uh, from the outside, the church did not look like it was in a very good place. Again, these religious leaders, they were powerful men and they were now out for the church. The church didn't have any kind of legal representation. They didn't have any kind of official legal power. But these Jewish leaders certainly did. And yeah, there's been tons of evangelistic fruit. There's over 5,000 Christians. But folks, that was it in the whole world. I mean, you can have 5,000 people in a church and you're not really considered to be a large megachurch yet. You could fit six of those in Southeast Christian Church. And that's all there was in the whole world. And these weren't 5,000 like seasoned saints who've been walking with Jesus for decades. They're all brand new Christians who bring with them all the baggage and the messiness and the questions and the immaturity that come with new Christians. Think of this as 5,000 Corinthian Christians. And now they're facing a test, an opposition. Things don't look very good for the church in this moment. And so, and so the, the church needed to be reminded what the reality was because outside it didn't look that good. And the reality that they need to be reminded of was that the Lord of heaven and earth is present with them. The sovereign Lord who created the universe, who rules it by his power, he's the one who is with them. And so matter, no matter what it looked like outside, the enemies of the church weren't just attacking the church, they were attacking God himself, the Lord of the universe. It reminds me of the story from 2 Kings chapter 6. 
the story of the prophet Elisha. It's not a story that gets a lot of airtime, but it is such a cool story. So Elisha, he's a prophet in the Old Testament, and he runs afoul of a pagan king because he keeps telling the Israelite king what this pagan king is going to do. And so the Israelite king is able to like maneuver around him. And so finally, the pagan king basically puts out a hit on Elisha. He's going to take him out. He keeps telling the Israelite king what he's doing because he's a prophet, right? He like knows this stuff. So the pagan king shows up at Elisha's house with his army. And Elisha is just a regular dude. Like he lives in a home with a few servants. He doesn't have like a castle. He doesn't have an army. And he wakes up in the morning and his servant says, Master, there's an army outside our house. We're done. And Elisha's not afraid. The servant's like, why are you afraid? And Elisha tells his servant this, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And this is amazing. And Elisha prayed, oh Lord, Open my servant's eyes so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The Lord of hosts, the armies of heaven were surrounding Elisha. What's, what's one measly pagan king and his ragtag group of soldiers? This is what the apostles need to be reminded of. Like, yeah, there are people out to get them, but God and his armies are with them. The very armies of heaven are surrounding this little church. No one can touch them. Nothing can be done to them. That's the reality. It looks bad, but they need to be reminded of the reality. You, Lord, are sovereign. You're the sovereign Lord. Even the even the way that people work against you, you use for your purposes and your plans. The enemies could howl and threaten all they want, but the armies of heaven were protecting the church. You know, there's all kinds of ways of, of, of things we can take as instructive for our own prayer life from this prayer. But the fact of the matter, for me anyways, you know, half of prayer often is simply being reminded and persuaded of what I already know. I mean, Peter and John, they, it's not like they'd forgotten that God was sovereign. These early Christians are early Christians, but they, they grew up Jews. They grew up studying the Old Testament. They knew that this was the God of the heavens and earth. But they needed to be reminded of that. They needed to be persuaded of that. And oftentimes, yeah, it, 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 this is what we need most, most of all, is just to be reminded of who God is. It, and this is why it's good to begin our prayers with God and not with our fears. Because oftentimes when we can get our heads straight about who God is, oh, he's a sovereign Lord. He's protecting us. His armies are hedging us in. It allows the fear to subside and all of a sudden we can see clearly, oh yeah, I can see now what I'm supposed to do. Tim Keller has written a great book on prayer. And he says, the reason why we don't begin prayer with fear, with our fears, but we begin it with God, is because when we begin our prayer with our fears, our prayers can devolve into kind of just worrying in God's direction. Uh, and, and, and in the end, those prayers can lead to more anxiety because we're just saying all the things that are wrong and it's just ingraining it in our brains. That's never a prayer that leads to the peace that surpasses all understanding. The goal of, of our prayers, again, is Psalm 44, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. When you're afraid, anxious, the best tonic for your soul, the best way to counter that fear 
is to worship. That's what the church does. God, you are the sovereign Lord. Worship, not because we're masochists, as if we're like, ha ha, I love being afraid. Not because we don't have legitimate reasons to be afraid, we might. But because you serve the sovereign Lord, who sends the very hosts of heaven to guard you and to keep you. You just gotta open your eyes and see it. So after getting their heads on straight about who God is, they actually get to their request. And they make two requests. The first one we see in verse 29. They say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. Take notice of their threats. Be concerned about what they're saying they're gonna do. It's kind of a strange prayer to make. Like, what exactly are they asking God to do? It doesn't say And of course, God knows about these threats. What does it mean to even take notice? God knew these threats before the religious leaders uttered them. What are they asking? I think what's going on is a movement of trust. It's just saying, God, you take care of this. It's offering up the fears to God. Not my will, but yours. You handle it for your sovereign. It's interesting, they don't ask for vengeance. They don't ask God to crush their enemies. They don't ask for justice. They just trust it to the Lord. Lord, you take care of this, please, in whatever way you see fit. And then the second request they make, which is to the heart of their request, continues. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They ask for one thing. Spiritual empowerment to continue to speak the gospel with boldness. Of all the things they could ask for in this situation, of all the needs that the church had, this is what they asked for. Just help us be bold and faithful to this gospel you've given us. It speaks worlds of what was most important to this early church. For them, as for us, there are many important things in life, many things that we're concerned about that we ought to be concerned about, but one thing for these early church Christians was necessary, and that was faithfulness to the gospel. So that's what they plead for, give me boldness. And it's interesting, in verse 30, I mean, it's like they've already internalized the fact that they serve the sovereign Lord, right? Because what they say is, you're gonna continue to do miracles and advance your kingdom, we know that. And while you stretch out your hand and heal and signs and wonders are performed, like, Jesus is gonna advance his kingdom, Even if they're afraid and they don't step into it, even if they deny the risen Lord Jesus Christ, like Jesus is the sovereign Lord. He's gonna advance his kingdom. And so their prayer is, Jesus, just help us to be bold and faithful to this gospel you've given us. Boldness in evangelism is not the only thing that we are supposed to pray for. The Lord's Prayer, which we recite together, tells us that to pray for our daily bread, for forgiveness, freedom from temptation. But I think this prayer is given to us as a model, an example. This is what was most important to these early Christians, that they might be courageous in sharing the gospel, even in the face of potential death. Brothers and sisters, we also should pray. Pray that you have boldness and courage this week to step into the opportunities that God and his sovereignty will bring into your way to be faithful to the Lord who has bought you with his blood 
who is worthy to be shared. Pray for that boldness. That's what this early church does. That's our second point, the prayer. Move to the third point, which is the response. And this is verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is a pretty simple point. They pray, they ask for boldness, and God answers. And he pours out his spirit, and he gives them boldness. And this group of unimpressive, weak Christians continue to preach the gospel with conviction and power and authority, even under the threat of harm and even death. And God doesn't just answer them, he shakes the room. What a good God. They needed that, and he gives it to them. That brings me to a question I have. Because God shook the room. Why doesn't God shake the room anymore? I've never been in a prayer meeting where the room shook. Why doesn't God work like this anymore? Or why does it seem like God doesn't work like this anymore? And I want to give a caveat before I get into what I'm trying to get at, which is that when we read Acts, we have to recognize we're seeing the church in a transitional period. We're moving from one age of salvation to another age. They're moving into the last days. We are now in the last days. And so there are aspects of Acts that are not meant to be repeated, i.e. writing scripture. We're not writing scripture anymore. So we need to just be wise about what are the parts in Acts that are seen as normative, meant to be things that we should see happen in our midst, and what parts aren't. But Christianity is a supernatural religion. So I ask again, why doesn't God shake the room anymore? And I have to say, I think one reason is what we find in James 4.2. You do not have because you do not ask. Or, as James continues in verse 3, you ask and still don't receive because you ask wrongly. The apostles are facing threats to their existence, and so they ask for boldness. And because they ask God, and because they ask for the right thing, they ask for what is dear to the Lord's heart, that they will be faithful in their proclamation of the gospel. Because they do that, God answers. And he sends out his spirit and he shakes the room. God answered that prayer because they asked and because they asked for the right thing. And one reason I think that we see less supernatural work of God in our churches is because we're just not asking for it. Um, some of you may have been following the story at Asbury University. It's been quite an occurrence. I haven't been there, but according to story, last week in a Tuesday morning chapel, chapel ended but the students stayed in the, in the chapel. They continued to pray and they continued to worship God and people started confessing sin. And that prayer worship meeting is still going two weeks later. And often in those two weeks, the chapel has been filled at capacity, 1,500 students crying out to God, praying to him, 
confessing sin, listening to sermons, being impacted and overwhelmed by the presence of God among them. And as I've been, you know, and, and, and from a distance, there's always a, it's always hard to know exactly what's going on when we're not there, but I've read enough eyewitness reports from credible sources that to me it's very clear this is a work of God's spirit at Asbury University. And I've, I've been excited this week. I have to tell you, as I've been reading the reports and, and, and I've been praying, God, continue this work. Because as a pastor, again, I'm always thinking about our church, I'm always thinking about churches, and so I'm well aware of how discouraging right now stories about the church in America are. It just seems like everything's going wrong, and so to finally see God do this kind of miraculous work, to me it's been just, are we on the beginning of another revival? Think first, second great awakening type thing. Like finally, the church will begin to rediscover the Jesus we serve and the mission that we're called to. Is this the beginning? I've been excited. And who knows? But it's occurred to me, you know, if this is the beginning of a revival, praise God. But why haven't I been asking for this? Again, I think about the health of our church and other churches all the time because I'm a pastor. Think of what you do for your job or your studies and just take all that and, you know, I think about this all the time. But yet, how rarely has it caused me, given me a prayer impulse to pray that God would send out his spirit and revive us. You know, we in America, we're in a very different place than the New Testament church. The New Testament church, they are in the midst of one of God's great works And we in America are in desperate need of revival, but the truth remains the same. You have not because you ask not. We have to begin to pray and earnestly seek the Lord together. If we want the room to shake, if we want to see the gospel go forth and change hearts, if we want to see people in our neighborhood come to know Jesus, if we want ourselves to be overwhelmed with the presence and the mercies of God, we've got to seek his face and ask him. This is why I've felt burdened to start these Saturday morning prayer meetings. Because I've come to the conviction that once a month this isn't enough. And you may say, Mike, I don't have time to pray every week. But do we really have time for anything else? Truly. Jesus spoke to the seven churches in Revelation. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and hear with me he with me. What burdens me is the thought that maybe Jesus is standing at the door of Vine Tree Baptist Church and he's knocking and he's saying, I want to come to you. I want to bless you with my presence and like you've never experienced it. I want you to know joy of salvation you can't fathom. But you got to ask me first. You got to get real about seeking my face. And you have to ask me again and again and again until I answer. Because he wants to. The heart of God throughout scripture is he wants to come to his people. So my concluding question for us, slash challenge, will we be a church that hears the voice of our Lord and seeks his face above everything? Let's pray. Jesus, I believe that you are always at the door of every church that is yours, calling us to enter deeper into your spirit, 
deeper into life with you, to experience more of your fullness. We thank you for the way that you have worked in our midst in these past few years and the decades, but Lord, we, we are not satisfied. And we want your spirit to be poured out on us. We want to be revived. We want to be a lighthouse of grace. We want to be the very visible expression of the church you've created us to be. Where the broken are healed and the blind gain sight and sinners are forgiven and made new. Spirit, may you do that. We look to you and pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.